0: I'm Bob Baki and I'm the senior pastor of Hillside Church in Bloomington, Minnesota. And I'm so glad to be down south with Sherwood Baptist. The Lord uh, laid upon my heart that we should start our upgrade conference by considering our upgrade of our view of Christ. I couldn't get released from it, and so I'm going to press into it. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we, we just heard a, a wonderful prayer that we would be laid at the throne and that we would be left there, just you and us to receive the blessing and the healing and the wonder of Christ, our Savior. We pray, O Lord, now by the power of your Holy Spirit, now that we have sung to you and have considered things about you, now we ask you to speak, for our hearts are hungry for Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I wonder if you are one who likes surprises. my church in Minnesota has a substantial ministry in India. Uh, I'll be there in February. The region we work in is a habitat for tigers. Uh, they live up in the mountains, and at certain times of the year, they make their way down from the mountains, and, well, if there was drought, or if there was some reason for, uh, that they were hungry, They'd make their way down, wander down from the hills to feed off of livestock in the valleys. And two years ago, I was speaking to a crowd of about 10,000, and they were all mostly poor farmers in a freshly mown field. And I told them that I had seen a tiger when I was a child, too. And they all sort of nervously laughed. It was at a zoo, I told them. I hadn't seen it in real life out in the, the environment of a tiger. It was at a zoo, and I remember walking along that path and, well, just coming around a corner, and there it was, this tiger, this, just a few yards away from me. I was staring at it. It seemed to stare at me for a moment, but not for long. It was lying in the grass and basking in the sun, looking, looking like a big, lazy cat, really. And it was, a, it was a mother. It had a cub with her. And every once in a while, she would bat at the cub. And the cub would, would play. And they were looking there, well, just as a beautiful couple, and she, an immensely beautiful animal. But after a few moments of playful activity with her cub, with an enormous big yawn, this big cat, laid down on its side and was soon asleep. The cub, running out of things to do without her mother's attention, well, she soon followed suit. Now, for me, as a little boy, the initial excitement of seeing this animal quickly wore off watching some animal sleep, two animals sleep. This big, lazy, sleeping animal was boring. What do you expect from a tiger that has been raised in a zoo, after all? And you got to know that by the time that she had come to this moment in life, well, she didn't care that humans were watching her. She didn't care that humans were watching just a few feet away. And frankly, I didn't care to look at her much longer either because of the commotion of the screeching monkeys that were in the next cage over and that seemed far more interesting than this beast. Now, three years ago, I was in a very different situation. I was in the Nandabar region of Western Maharashtra when my friend Madan Valvi and I were ministering. Madan is an elder in my church, and he was born in the region, born to a Hindu family, brought to Christ through a Swedish missionary. Nandabar is a very poor region. No one goes there for tourists, for tourist reasons. Some of the villages there have hardly changed in 500 years. They all have cell phones, by the way, but the villages haven't changed. Now, a young pastor uh, came to Madan and I as we were ministering, and he said he wanted to show us his village. He wanted to show us a, a small little chapel that he had built, a church. A, a, when we got there, it was about the size of, it could hold about 30 people or so. It was, it was really well done, really well built. Well, we traveled to this remote village. And he needed a door, he said, to keep the animals out, the chickens and the goats, etc. We got to the village, and it was all mud houses, the village, village was, and it was surrounded, all the village huts were surrounded by intertwined branches that acted like thickets, And they're very, very sturdy, very strong. I was surprised by it. Uh, But we noticed that there was no one else in the village. It felt like a ghost town. And we asked the young pastor about this, and he said that the, the villagers were gone because there were two tigers roaming nearby, having come down out of the mountains, and they had fed off some of the livestock. Well, the fact that two tigers had been spotted nearby was very surprising to us and disconcerting. And when I'm in, when I'm in India, I take all my cues from my friend Madan, what food to eat, what, what path to walk on, where to go, to be careful. Well, I saw Madan's demeanor changed instantly. I don't think he was capable of turning white, but he it was careful, but he could have been if. Uh, if the conditions were correct. He had grown up in the area, and suddenly the thought of two tigers roaming by was not boring at all. And Madan and I looked at each other, and without speaking, we were wondering why this pastor thought it was okay to bring us to this village when he could have just showed us a picture or something. <laughs> we were not comfortable at all. We never actually saw the tigers, but there was sure a different sense of things when I was there with two tigers nearby, contrasted with the zoo animal I found as a boy. Now the tigers on the prowl near the villages, they weren't tame. They didn't grow up in a zoo. They weren't domesticated by any means. And because of this, all your senses then instantly are alerted at the thought of even one, one grown tiger nearby, and your mind races to an exit plan, some kind of defense that you could, you could put up. You don't have any weapons, you don't have anything around, but what, what could you do if someone actually, someone, some animal just actually showed up? And every sound, everything that moves, it takes on a, a, a greater importance. Your, your senses are fully alert then, do you know the tigers can grow to 12 feet in length from nose to the tip of their t- tail with paws as large as a human head with a sprint speed of 50 miles an hour able to leap 30 feet from a standstill weighing as much as 500 pounds and there were two of them. And this wasn't just surprising. This was alar- alarming. A few months before our trip, a Christian husband and wife were traveling on a motorcycle in the same district. They were like millions of Hindu or Indian couples riding on their motorcycles, whizzing along, but suddenly a surprise came, and really a shock. And With no warning, they were struck by an immense unknown force, and they and their motorcycle went tumbling, head over heels, wildly off the road. And a tiger, hiding in the brush along the road, had leapt out of them from the brush as they drove by, and his size and enormous strength threw them to the ground. Not only were they stunned, but they were obviously thinking they were going to die. And the the tiger quickly attack them again, dragging and then digging his enormous claws deeply into the woman's leg as he pulled her to himself, claws up to five inches long and as sharp as razors. The couple, convinced they were going to die, realized they were saved by a miracle. Because when the tiger initially attacked them, he tried to bite the woman simultaneously as if he would a deer or an antelope he was chasing down. But as he bit at her and missed her, he actually bit the license plate off the back of the, the, the motorcycle. And the license plate was stuck in his jaws between his top teeth and his lower teeth, and he couldn't get it out. And he, while he held the woman down, others from around then started throwing rocks at him and sticks, and the man got up Distracted then by the license plate in his mouth, he then wandered off into the brush. The attack and their survival made the headlines of the local newspapers, and my friend Mauden and I interviewed the two of them at one of our meetings. There was nothing boring about this tiger, nothing tame, the surprise encounter probably kept this couple up at night for months and the woman will always bear the wounds of that encounter well let me ask you a question if a tiger was on the loose in the hallways of Sherwood Baptist Church this morning what would you do I'll tell you one thing. If I got up and warned you that a tiger was on the loose in this building, you would cease listening to me at this moment, and you would be watching every exit, and you would be listening for every sound. You would be completely diverted. Well, something is on the loose in the halls of this church, and he is not tame. And to ignore him is a far more dangerous proposition than anything you will ever face on earth, whether man or beast or act of nature. And how one can slumber in his presence is beyond comprehension. And who is it on the prowl? is God. And the lesson of the Bible is this. When the veil that hides the glory of God from our eyes is removed, even for a moment, and we behold him as he is, our human response is predictable. From Genesis to Revelation, it is predictable. And I want to consider it. Now, Isaiah chapter 6 is one of those really famous passages, and we read in Isaiah chapter 6 that in the year that King Uzziah died, right, Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple, we're told. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their eyes. And with two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another antiphonally, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, the Hebrew, the Hebrew, as you repeat something, you emphasize something. If something is magnificent, you say, wow, that's that's beautiful. But if it's really beautiful, you say, it is beautiful, beautiful. Or if you're going up a mountain, you would be going up a mountain. But if you were going up the Rocky Mountains, you were going up the Mountain Mountains. And here, the only attribute of God in the Scriptures, repeated three times for emphasis in the Hebrew, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And holy, what's the word holy mean? It means he is like none other. He is completely other. Nothing in our human experience can account for his attributes, his character. He is nothing like anything else. In verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold of the temple was filled with smoke. And when Isaiah saw this, Isaiah cursed himself and cried, Woe to me! I am ruined. Literally, I'm destroyed. I'm annihilated. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, I am certain that, like the couple that was attacked by the tiger, I'm certain that Isaiah didn't sleep for weeks. And I am certain that he never escaped and was never healed of the wounds of this encounter. Now, people have a false impression about God. They're shocked when they come face to face with God's glory, even even for a moment because he is not tame, he is not domesticated, and we are guilty of promoting such a God, often in zoos with crosses on them and choirs to sing. As if you walk into a place that is safe to encounter the living and holy God. Daniel chapter 10, and Daniel encountered the angel of the Lord like the one, like a one, the son of man. Daniel writes, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel. And then in, chapter, in verse 14, the angel of the Lord said, I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. So... Daniel came face to face then with the holiness of God. And while he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. And I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish, Because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless, how can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Theologians have come up with a... A term to describe what happens when we encounter the holiness of God—they uh, call it the mysterium tremendum, two Latin words: tremendous mystery. This is what we, this is how we respond when we come into these holy mysteries. It describes the trembling or the quaking of our bodies, the, the thoughts of ruin that passes through our heads or our hearts when the person. When any person encounters the revelation of God in all of his glory, we just simply can't withstand it. R.C. Sproul calls it the trauma of God. The idea of meeting God is so awful, awful, that in the mind of man it becomes dreadful. In fact, our, uh, Sproul argues that the trauma of God, this dread of God in His full manifest, manifest glory lies behind the psychological bias of atheists. They, de- they deny the existence of God, but there's a psychological bias to this, he argues, that we are like a person so traumatized by an event when we were a child, for, for example, that we block the memory of this trauma we block the memory of the persons involved in this trauma. And in this case, in our case with regard to our relationship with God, we have shut out the very thought of God itself. So atheism, he argues, is a defense mechanism to defend a person's psyche against any thought of encountering the God of the Bible in all of his holiness who will hold us accountable for the lives that we live. But you might say, what about the New Testament? You're talking about Old Testament stuff. This seems like the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, I should say, the first part of our Bible. What about Jesus? I mean, so gracious was he, so loving, so kind, so heal, the healer of our souls, et cetera. But well, we find it here, too, in the New Testament. Because our God is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. In Mark chapter 4, for example, starting with verse 35, when the evening came, we're told that Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. Leaving a crowd behind, he'd been preaching all day, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat, And there were other boats with him, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. You guys just went through a squall just recently. Wind blowing, trees, rain pouring down like crazy. I'm sure there were occasions when people in that storm, I know down in Florida they were screaming for help, crying for help, wherever they could, wondering where God was in the midst of the storm. Well, Jesus was there, but he was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. So the natural, the natural events surrounding him, well, they, they didn't concern him at all. But the disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So he got up, not in response to the wind and the waves, but in response to the agony of his friends. And he rebuked the wind and the waves, Quiet! Quiet! Be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Literally, why are you acting like cowards? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified. Phobon megon. Phobia mega, mega, phobia, they were really afraid. They were afraid of the wind and the waves. They were terrified of Christ who could command them. In Matthew 17, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them high on a mountain by themselves, verse 2, and there he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, verse 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, the glory cloud of God. And a voice came from the clouds, and it said... This is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Behold your God. Upgrade your vision of Christ. He is greater than you imagine him to be. And if we were to behold him in his glory, mysterium tremendum. Matthew 27, the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus cried out, remember, in a loud voice at the height of his agony, Eloi, Eloi, lama sukbathani, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? And then in another loud voice, phone megale, big voice, phone, phone, voice, sound, phono, phonograph, phone, iPhone right? Phone Megale. Big voice. He cried. He didn't die with a whimper. He died with a big voice. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And at that moment we're told, verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks split, and the tombs broke, broke open. And the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those who who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were what? Terrified and exclaimed, surely this is the Son of God. Now, we're going to close with one more verse, but you're getting the idea, I hope. Revelation chapter 1. Let me give you just a little context of this. It was at the end of the first century. All the eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus were dying, or they were dead. So those firsthand stories around the campfires at night about the miracles of Jesus and his teaching here or there, or somewhere, maybe Jerusalem, etc. those stories were passing away. The apostles had died too, all except for one, we think. John. John was the youngest of the apostles, or among the youngest of the apostles, but John at this time, he's old, he's imprisoned. He's near the end of his life. And Many of the churches at the time were experiencing difficulty. They were small. They were, well, in our eyes today, perhaps insignificant. And when contrasted with the ubiquity of the Roman Empire and all the power that it could bring to bear upon culture, upon the economy, upon, well, the military might and the police state, etc., well, there was no comparison between the kingdom of God, which was small and, and f- fledgling and, and weak and under oppression, and the, the, the wonder and the power of Rome. So many of the followers of Jesus, you just have to put yourself in their shoes, right? In the first century, at the end of the first century. Is it 60 years after Jesus? They're, they're probably wondering, well, where are the promises of God's kingdom? I mean, we've been, we've been at this for a while now. Where are, are those promises? Where, where is the kingdom? And Rome seems more powerful than ever before. It just ran over Jerusalem a few years before, scattered the Jews everywhere, and our people were scattered with them. There is no Jerusalem anymore as we have known it. And we are these small little churches scattered everywhere. Where are, where are the promises of Christ? Where is he? Where is he? And why hasn't he come? Can we trust in his promises? So before the curtain closes on the apostolic age, the age of the first witnesses of Jesus, Jesus has one final revelation, and it wasn't just a word, but it was a manifestation of his glory. His assurance that all was not lost, but all was held within the palms of his hand, that history was his and belonged to no other. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, we read that I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. Most assuredly, he was in prayer. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you have seen, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Seven churches not too far from where he was imprisoned. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. In other words, in human form, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest, and his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire, and his feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, and a voice, his voice, was like the sound of rushing waters, and in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a double-edged sword, and his face... Was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Mysterium tremendum. Jesus. Remember who John was. He was with Jesus from the beginning, at the, from the very beginning. He was part of Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He was the, quote, beloved disciple. He saw the miracle work in Christ. He walked with him. He spent 24-7 with this guy. He watched blind, blind men come to sight, lepers cleansed, the raising of the dead, He watched Jesus walk on water. Freaked him out, walking on water. John saw it. He was there at the transfiguration. He beheld the trial, at least from a distance. He watched as the abused and despised, crucified Christ perished in his naked agony. But then he saw and beheld the resurrected Christ, spent days with him. He was one of the first men at the tomb, the first one to the tomb, not the first one in, the second one in. He saw the resurrected Christ. He probably witnessed James trying to stick his hands in Jesus' side. And not only that, he saw the ascended Christ as clouds enveloped Christ in glory and received him into heaven. But when John saw the glorified Christ, it was more than he could bear. And he fell at his feet as though dead. I'd say we're in need for an upgrade of our view of Christ, don't you? He is not tame. Remember C.S. Lewis' line, Mrs. Beaver, about Asland? He's not safe, but he's good. But you see, you cannot understand grace, unmerited mercy, and the tremendous privilege that is yours in Christ Jesus if you were to believe if you, would, if you do believe, you can't understand and fathom the riches, the lavish riches of his mercy until you understand the one who has extended it to you. And when God says, when the Bible says, God so loved the world, God, the one Isaiah saw, God. The messenger that Daniel saw, God so loved you that he gave his only son, this son, in his resurrected glorious state now, but in his pre-existence as one of the triune God. Glorious. This son was given to you. This son laid down his life for you. Someone say, wow. But Jesus doesn't leave John in a coma, does he? Jesus placed his right hand on John and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Is this your Christ? He loves you so. But it is out of the greatness of his person that you fathom the value of that love and the wonder of His grace. Let me tell you then, he sent a letter to seven churches. This revelation to John, it was to send letters to seven churches. And either implicitly or explicitly, Jesus was promising to come to each of those seven churches. And depending on who they were, and what sins they were guilty of, that promise was either something to rejoice at or something to tremble over. And I'm wondering whether the promise of Jesus coming today is a hope for you or a terror. And it can be resolved today. Mysterium Tremendum, in the presence of a great and glorious God, we cannot stay upright. And we lose our strength. In fact, we can't even raise our head unless he bids us to. But in grace he does. I'm wondering if you could join me on my knees before this glorious one. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. I was dead but now live and hold in my hands the keys to death and Hades. Life and death is before us. This one you worship as Christ, he is not tame. He is not safe. He is holy and righteous and good. And he loves you. He loves you. Does not your heart melt at those words? He loves you. When Christ or God the Father manifests himself, sin is exposed instantly, weakness. What does he expose to you in this hour? What stands between you and this wondrous Christ? Nothing needs to stand there. Can you sense his hand upon you? Do not be afraid, even as you are afraid. Love him but adore him as he truly is. Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Father, we bow before you and your Son, and we confess, O Christ, that we often give you less due than you are worthy of. And Lord, I pray that in this audience this morning, in this worship center this morning, you will resolve the faith of those who, whose faith is lacking, and you will transform those who have avoided you for years, but they can avoid you no longer. For if they do not deal with you now, they will see you one day as the eastern sky breaks and every eye behold you and i pray this in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen